Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbalay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe September 4th, 2009. This is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. And for folks who are interested in participating, the call-in details are also available via biota.org slash podcast. The next episode, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, September 18th, Many Great Projects. This is a a topic that's kind of been percolating for a while in terms of the uh, number of projects that exist in the artificial life community. And speaking of the number of great uh, projects in the artificial life community, we have Eric Burton on the line. Hello, Eric. Hey, Tom. Sorry about that. I have this teleconference I'm three-wayed to right now. I I I just uh, I I wanted to call in and get on the thing. I've got a new long distance plan, so it's I can finally call in without stealing these calls. Not a I problem. I was getting so paranoid before. I thought I uh, should stop doing that for a while. Don't worry about it. So the the topic next uh, by us live is the, is the many great projects in the artificial life community, and I think maybe the last time we talked. You talked a little bit about your own surveying of the artificial life community's many projects. What are the projects that are exciting you currently in the artificial life community? I've been playing with a really exciting piece of software lately, Tom, called Critterding, and they, they don't have a, they don't have a public beta of this out right now with all the new technology in it. But he's just added uh, segmented bodies and physics with the bullet library and uh, all kinds of all kinds of new stuff like this that makes it a pretty open-ended simulation. I've I've been putting a few weeks into one of these just trying to get the uh, behaviors of these things to encode the game rules in some way, but uh, so far the brains they've evolved seem preoccupied with the physics of the place. Um, it's pretty interesting nonetheless. Yes, I mean, it's, as you may have heard uh, on the last Live, we had Steve Grand on, and he emailed me the Symbiosis source code, as he promised to do. I've, I've had a look through it, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I think for someone such as yourself, you'd, you'd be ideally suited uh, to, to look through the code, too. I mean, as, as I was doing with Jeffrey Ventrella, the, the project really associated with getting these folk to move their closed-source projects open-source so people such as yourself and other people in the broader artificial life community can can look at it and, and collaborate and uh, possibly merge projects is, you know, is the reason why I'm doing this. And really, it's a question out to the community where we go from here. I think Steve is interested in thinking about open source and thinking about moving it open source. It could be something uh, that moves in a number of different directions. Obviously, my interest is, is contributing it to the artificial life community, similar to a wide variety of other open source Projects. We have Eric Burton back on the line. Well, yeah, this is a neural net application, and I'm hoping they can get it out on uh, for for everyone to use soon. Because the uh, yeah, you know, there were some optical character recognition tests that it passed with flying colors. And in theory, these things have got this uh, visual retina. You should be able to learn to see it in their environment, and uh, when it has 3D features and things like this, you should be able to get a whole variety of life forms of if we can get the cycles together. He just started experimenting with these closed races, like in Framsticks, to evolve for properties of the phenotypes, and etc. 
Wonderful. Now we have Bruce Damer on the line as well, and I know Eric has, has been a huge fan of the EvoGrid development. Bruce, it's wonderful to have you on by live this evening. My pleasure, Tom. So, Eric, as we have the benefit of Bruce on the line, what's your current thinking with regards to the EvoGrid, and, and what questions do you have for Bruce specifically about the EvoGrid? I still think that's an exciting project. You know, I'm not, I'm not real sure how you're gonna how you're going to have an algorithm in there looking for uh, re- reproducibility or actual reproduction or copying within the uh, within the soup. If you could get one, I can see how you could uh, send up some kind of an alarm the first time some node found anything reproducing, and that's a good thing, a good task to distribute among many machines. And then, you, of course, you could seed the ones that are reproducing onto all the machines and... Uh, try to work on algorithms that would select ones that show more interesting behaviors than that up the ladder. Ultimately, I think you need an artificial intelligence to select them. That kind of uh, comes yeah, to this, problem. Yeah, Eric, Eric, this is a, it brings up, you bring up a whole range of really interesting questions. Uh, one, right. yes, Dick Gordon talks about the origin of perception and that perception is half the, half the story. And one of, one of the things, um, just to sort of clarify, uh, in the very beginning beginning days or years of the evil grid, we're not going to see anything near replication or, or reproduction. We're going to just see a whole bunch of things uh, forming structures and forming patterns of reactions or cycles of reactions. And that's it's prebiotic in a sense or pre-artificially biotic. Uh, sure. So... When, when we actually see things making copies, kind of, if we see a Tierra, if we see Tierra spontaneously emerge within the Evo Grid, we will have, it will be a major achievement. Um, uh, but, uh, well, Dawkins yeah. prebiotic replicators were just crystals that would uh, fracture at a certain length and uh, form the stable sized crystals again. Yeah, yeah, and then certainly. If, if one if one decided to set up the experiment so that so that replication happens replication will happen right. uh, the, the tricky the tricky knife edge or the razor's edge here is if you set it up to happen it's likely to happen so well that um, it, it reaches the complexity threshold and never goes beyond which was the challenge of Tierra that it never busted through that plateau and went further and it's almost like you need a much more complex, open-ended system uh, yes. to get that kind of behavior. You need, you need your primordial soup, almost. Indeed. And you're traveling to Scandinavia in the near future, Bruce, aren't you, in, in order to talk about these things and also what's going to happen at Artificial Life 12? Yeah, I'm scheduled now uh, to go. I'm going to London on the 15th of October and then hopefully meeting Martin Hansig and going to Copenhagen and take the train down to Odense. And on Friday the 16th, meet all day with himself and Harold Kellerman and Steen Rasmussen. Um, it's likely that I'll be one of several people organizing a, a track at the conference about this exact, these kind of simulations that are used in context with origin of life research, um, and which is very exciting to me. I mean, it's just going to be... I take on 
put on that hat with relish and really look forward to interacting with the community, especially if papers are being submitted and we're trying to decide if it's a if it's all tracked and we've got you know a couple of days to fill of uh, of themed papers. It, it's a it's a wonderful, warm, a generous invitation by seeing someone who's relatively unknown to the, the A-Life academic community to let me be participating. And I think, I mean, certainly the surveying that we're getting currently is that there could actually be a suite of applications which, I don't know whether you call them EvoGrid-like applications, I don't know whether you call them all part of the EvoGrid, I'm not sure how you do this, as I was saying to Eric, prior to you getting on the call, Steve Grand emailed me his symbiosis source through the week, and it's fascinating because obviously part of this project with, with Steve Grand and also with Jeffrey Ventrella in terms of moving a lot of their legacy source code open source is really about kind of sparking a, a broader artificial life community, which Eric is, is central in, in terms of those that actually pick up this source code, manipulate it, and perhaps create, you know, future collaborations from it. So, I mean, as you phrase the EvoGrid going into your discussions with regards to A-Life 12, Bruce, do you see it as being a, a suite of possible projects? Do you see it as being your specific EvoGrid and then a series of EvoGrid-like projects? How do you put that all together? I think that what I'm after is a kind of a holy grail of a method. Um, so it's a very much like our call with, Steve Grand a couple of weeks ago along those lines. In fact, my uh, the research, the dissertation that I'll be writing as a result of this work is, is going to be the EvoGrid, you know, a generalized architecture for, uh, for doing a whole class of research around emergent complexity. So EvoGrids of all types could be built with this idea, and, and I think Eric pretty much summarized it is that you've got a an engine that is doing a physics and is doing a, a toy universe and then you have uh, other you have lookers or seekers that are trying to, to find complexity within that universe and then uh, targeting then reporting back and then some kind of tracker is, is is looking at allocating more computing resources or taking various shortcuts without necessarily um, without biasing the simulation unduly, i.e. that there's no intelligent, there's algorithms that are, that are selecting, but is, you know, the key question is that artificial, artificial evolution, artificial simulation of complexity, well, of course it's all artificial, but really the, the, the end result, the end result is if you get a piece of molecular or algorithmic machinery that, that occurs with, with years and years of running this, and you, you can absolutely say no one built this. Uh, and this went through several levels of complexity. It's not only is there algorithmic machinery at one level, but there's machinery below. And there's there's an there's entire sort of an artificial ecosystem. You can say, well, maybe the whole thing was a, a setup, but look at this. We know that no one made this thing, and it did emerge from from the ground up, to, so to speak, with a whole lot of tweaking, which is what chemists are doing yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm writing a chapter currently on this idea of actually searching for artificial life and noise and what kind of properties one looks for when one writes the algorithms to actually search these things out. And I think 
in all the test algorithms I can find, and they're all fundamentally based on cellular automata, be that chemical automata and what have you, there's a kind of crunchiness to the complexity of what you see in artificial life. I mean, if you look at uh, you know, Conway's life, for example, the structures that are formed and the structures that are formed in cellular automata have a kind of a complexity which is relatively easy to follow algorithmically. So I think it's one of these things which what we're lacking currently is just papers written about this very subject. And certainly I'll be talking to Mark Bedeau within the next month and I'll put to him that one of the areas of research that could be very easily kind of tackled is this whole idea of scanning algorithmically through an artificial world, through through some kind of simulated soup in order to find the areas of interest. I think it's relatively trivial uh, with, with your eyes and this is the you know, the beauty of Dick Gordon's observer function, because that's exactly what you're trying to do algorithmically, is just look for that kind of crunchiness, which is fundamentally uh, either either pre or just at the cusp of the formation of artificial life. But I'm still going through the news tonight, so we haven't actually touched on this evening's topic yet. So I wanted to send a shout out to Duncan, who's a listener of uh, the Biota podcast. I've been communicating with for a couple of years now. He lives in San Diego and he's one of these I don't know what what you would call them now, kind of bio uh, pharma folk who um, is part of an independent um, startup who has a long term interest in artificial life but he also as an evening project creates um, servo switches and other kind of robotics like things for uh, model railways but he's the perfect kind of crossover with regards to the robotics community and the ALAF community. So I picked his brain over dinner uh, about some of his listening habits associated with podcasts, what he liked in Live, but also about this business that he's creating, because I think this is certainly uh, the model that we were discussing over the past two Lives in terms of artificial life developers developing an after-hours project in terms of selling little bits of hardware. And he has some wonderful YouTube clips associated with this kind of single-circuit board servo Arrangement, which is very much of the of the model of what I was discussing with uh, Steve Grand uh, last week, and also uh, Tolkis, both the Bio Life before and and the last Bio Life. So shout out to Duncan, also to Ian Woodward, whose question came via Facebook, but then I posted through the I think the Evo Grid mailing list, and then posted back to him on Facebook. So if you want to get in contact and you listen to Bio Live and you want to raise any questions please email them to me either via my regular email tom at noble8.com or via Facebook or via Twitter or via any of these mechanisms. I'll put it back to the artificial life community and then get you the answers back or even better, consider joining the Biota Conversations mailing list or the EvoGrid mailing list. So I think I've pretty well covered the news and notes. This week's topic, we're going to be exploring some of the aspects of the singularity Eric, uh, as you follow the artificial life community and a wide variety of other um, kind of emerging uh, tech communities, what's your view with regards to the singularity movement? Well, you know, Tom, I want to say heuristics can take us so far, but I always end up wishing I had an AI to tune these GAs, and then it occurs to me if I had an AI, it could just design the most interesting organism possible for the model I'm working with the short circuit the whole process which is really why I'm interested in the singularity community as well because I think if they can deliver human level AI then they can produce uh, an, an unlimited stream of uh, interested customers for technology services which would be a, a boom for the high tech uh, industry which is certainly our future and uh, 
I would help every city on earth. Uh, I have to agree with you. I mean, that's the utopian vision associated with the singularity movement. And it was interesting having Steve Grand on to a day trade to pay for cloud time and certainly so they could pursue their interests. Well, when you posted that in the Biota Conversations, I think, so ironically, I, I know a couple in Las Vegas who've done exactly that um, and approached me, and I, I'm in some uh, ongoing communication with their, um, they have a group called the Las Vegas Futurists here, and that's basically what they do. Uh, they have a an extended algorithm that they've been working on for the past 15 years that basically does that, that manages hedge funds and does a wide variety of other uh, financial trading-related things, and they've made themselves yeah, quite a I, bit of money through it. I did a little trading work with a uh, with a GA and a neural net. It's theoretically sound, and it's not that difficult. Certainly. Well, it's a principle that they use, and they have been talking to me about releasing components of their algorithm open source, if nothing more, so they can get a greater degree of academic credibility associated with the field. But they are it's funny because certainly we share a, a number of uh, mutual friends. In fact, I think they're mutual friends with Bruce as well, which is probably how I was introduced to them, perhaps by John Smart or someone else. But what's interesting with the singularity community is you're, you're right in terms of the vision and you're right in terms of the people that get interested as active participants. What interested me with Steve Grand on uh, Last Boat Live was he used the, the very pure definition of artificial life as life as it could be. And what interested me also is that he said that artificial intelligence was a subset of artificial life. And that interests me as well because that's the definition of intelligence as it could be, which is ultimately my argument with regards to us being fundamentally post-singular is that you need to remove the idea of intelligence from human intelligence just as we've removed the idea of life and biological life in terms of what we do with artificial life. So in my argument has been, you know, for a, a few years now, that we should think of ourselves as being post-singular in terms of the fact that we are surrounded by systems which are far better at surviving than we are, and perhaps survival is a far better initial metric of intelligence. I mean, you can build human intelligence from survival. You can build a wide variety of intelligences from survival. But what has interested me is this kind of broad changing movement associated with the singularity, which Bruce touched on when he was last on Biota Live. Can you talk a little bit more, Bruce, about the kind of changing direction and perhaps some of the underlying politics associated with the breakaway groups from the singularity? And how does it all fit together as you see it? Well, you know, frankly, I'm I'm not that connected with the community. I I was at the Singularity University. I did a talk in July, and I went to the graduation last week. But I think that they're really and two two of the Singularity University people came here to a party we had here on Wednesday night. Um, I don't think anybody really knows what. Singularity means. I think it's one of those. It's like AI, or or other things in in, in technology, sort of a te technosis type of thing, where everybody has their own idea. They're walking around in their head with their own idea of what it's about. You know, for for me, it's a science fiction idea that's still in Whoa. science fiction. But you know, I you know, and, and it, the singularity is like is like the point when AI starts to give us technology we couldn't have had without time travel or Congress with aliens. You know? 
mm-hmm. one that starts to print out future technology designs extrapolated from faithful simulations of Earth physics, that would be what we call the singularity. There would be an accelerating payoff at that point where the designs would be from 10 years in the future, then 100, then 1,000 as we implemented them and used them to produce new ones. And it would but just I, be a matter of how quickly we made use of the stuff coming down the pipe. When when I hear about that, I, mean, pipe. I, I again, it's almost like going back to the artificial intelligence days. How do you get there from here? And and I had, a, I had a I had a lunch. Uh, well, about six or seven years ago, I had lunch. Gail and I had lunch with John McCarthy. Um, not John. Was it John McCarthy? Gosh, I guess it was. No, it was uh, the fellow from the East Coast. Anyway, you had lunch with someone. Anyway, and and he said he was incredibly disappointed by the the whole thing that it had. That's how you get there from here. He felt there'd been no no progress um, in the 50 years that he'd been working, 45 years he'd been working in it, and he was fed up with it. which is not just the nature of the problem of looking at a very finite thing and not being able to solve a very small thing and not looking at the broader kind of complexity and wonder that comes through things like, you know, the Internet or, you know, a wide variety of other complex systems which are, in fact, far broader than the individual humans that are constructing them. I think there's, there's an issue associated with localized intelligence that I heard recently attached to someone, and I think this is the same problem that we're very good... We're very good at this idea of kind of localized intelligence, and we're very good at focusing that. But in terms of broader intelligence, we've really failed in order of kind of grasping the magnitude and the complexity of the systems that we create. And that seems to be the the fundamental disconnect with this idea of kind of human intelligence and singularity. And I think this is what's beautiful with regards to Eric's vision associated with the fact that we probably do have this pipeline in terms of things that are being produced almost like they were from alien intelligence. I mean, Eric, how do you see the present day versus this narrative? Well, I think it would be the most disruptive technology in the world, Tom. I mean, the first things we would get would be nano nanofabricators and uh, teleportation technology, faster than light radio and things like this, and we'd be immediately converted to a star-going civilization. There wouldn't be a limit on the progress we could make from there. It would just be a matter of how much of human identity we felt uh, was our responsibility to keep, I think, how many identificatory traits. So this is basically breaking the energy barrier, but breaking entropy and being able to create things that were far greater than anything we could have originally imagined. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a potential outcome for life on Earth, I imagine, for intelligent life anywhere. I've read that single-planet species have a statistically low survival rate, but we have a lot of resources on Earth, and we're rich in some ways. So one of those ways may turn out to be in uh, research and information technology. That may be uh, what saves us in the end. It may do so in dramatic fashion. I'll just jump in here a bit. I'm a huge skeptic about this kind of thing, Uh, Kind of what what Eric Davis calls technosis, which is, um, in a sense, you know, I don't know what, whether he said this or somebody else said this. It's the rapture for nerds, <laughs> right. um, because, as you might know, Eric, I've, well, I've been in the c- computing since the 70s, but in 
you know, sort of as a standoffish kid and then really getting involved in about 1981. But in the barn, I've got a giant collection of vintage computers, and I've got machines, operating machines from the year of my birth from 1962 on up. Right. And I can track all that. And to tell you the truth, and there's a second part of things, and I've been working with NASA for 10 years and sort of following it since I was a kid in the 60s. And to tell you the truth, I think that human beings, I would more bend toward Tom. Tom's approach, I think, which is, I don't think that we're going to see some kind of singular intelligent thing that wakes up one day and starts inventing technology for us and, and, and going to Starbucks and having a coffee with us. I think that we are being absorbed into a big complex thing that we're having to maintain and that it's taking more and more of our attention. And then that thing is a, is a huge collective mass thing. It, it, it's right. not an intelligence. It's a, it's a movement. Well, giving you an example of where that thing takes you, uh, Skylab, which was launched in '73. So more human input, not less. Well, let, let me as it let goes. me let me finish. Okay. Skylab. I've been involved in NASA for about a decade, but I've studied and we've modeled almost every single mission NASA has done, uh, human and, and robotic. Skylab was launched in 1973. It was a very fairly simple space station. It was fairly large because they used the Saturn V, the last remaining Saturn V. But it was very low maintenance. Uh, the International Space Station, on the other hand, is incredibly complex. It is, it, software runs every aspect. It can actually be operated from the ground with no crew on board. It's never been done, really, and, uh, but they designed it that way. But it requires a huge amount of crew, constant crew maintenance and things are breaking and whatnot. Yeah. And there's now six to 12 people there off and on. But what, what that points out is, and this is what I pointed out to two people from the Singularity Program who came here two days ago, said you're living in an ever more complex machine that isn't necessarily very well designed. It gradually gets optimized over time and society and more and more mental resources on this this thing. But I don't know if there's any direction to it. I mean, certainly it enables commerce and enables science and whatnot, sort of accelerates life, but I think it's just this big cooperative collective bargain that we've all gotten into. And, and I think, Tom, Tom, you pointed out in the past that the singularity is happening, but it's this big massive hydra that we're uh, being engulfed in and I think what comes through your discussion is the fragility of the human body, but in fact the persistence of the human mind in some very real sense. And I mean, I don't want to necessarily get dualistic here, but the issue with regards to how we will, our, the benefits that we've made through space exploration where we haven't had to put our bodies into space, particularly with regards to Mars, particularly with regards to how these robotic entities on Mars, even while their wheels kind of break off or stop functioning, can continue to give us worthwhile information and this kind of feedback is really you know moving beyond our, our bodies in terms of what we are dealing with I mean the, the nature of the, the the problems associated with putting humans in space is always to do with our bodies and the you know 
there's fundamental flaws in this, but our minds seem to be considerably freer in terms of how they can interact with these kind of environments. I mean, what, what interested me with regards to this evening's topic was this idea of the Singularity Summit. And I think the, the description that you gave last time you were on Biota Live is really that the Singularity Movement is now fracturing in a number of different directions that are, in many regards, away from uh, Kurzweil and uh, Bernavinci's original vision associated with you know, this very tight singularity. And what interests me is that they still have a summit where they bring back together all the old names to continue to talk about the narrative, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of progression within the core group that still consider themselves, you know, the original visionaries of the singularity. And what interests me is the almost 1950s style sci-fi methodology that goes into this movement. But what Eric talks about is the extreme kind of inspiration that this idea, when taken by independent folk thinking about it, can give you know new and interesting visions. And I'm certainly always positive towards these ideas as kind of motivators. My real concern with regards to the singularity kind of TM movement is this idea that there are in fact a number of intellectually regressive forces that are polluting the discussion, and really it would be far better to have folks such as, you know, Eric and yourself and myself and people that are actively doing real development in these areas talking about it as opposed to the same old folk who kind of come out and say the same kind of 1950s sci-fi vision associated with this thing. And whilst we can all do what we do and do it independently, it, there just seems to be almost a, a kind of digressive force associated with the contemporary singularity movement, which is what interested me about this idea of breakaway components that are actually reaching out to people such as yourself, Bruce. I mean, is this what you're feeling currently? Well, yeah. Um, this summer, for instance, the, the Singularity Program, I, I agreed to participate and present on the condition that there wouldn't be an overarching requirement to, to talk about Ray and Werner's science fiction vision of the Singularity, that I could actually just present the evil grid and present the history of computing Several of the students uh, that were at graduation came up and said it was just that they, they really liked the, the talk. And they got a lot out of it. And each of the presenters, I don't think that many of them really even talked about it. The day that I was there, nobody mentioned the word singularity who was, who was presenting. Uh, so it seemed to be just, and on Wednesday night, I, one of the organizers was here. And I said, you know, the problem is, and maybe you, guys have thought about this is the word singularity is now so culturally loaded in, in a very small, and he said, yeah, and it, it is, and it's in a very small nerd community, but it's culturally loaded already, and it's in a sense polluted by, by that. Um, there were people who wouldn't participate in the program because it had, the, it, it, it had singularity on it, uh, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't present uh, because they thought it was flaky. And, and, and so I said, is there any possible, it didn't, the program didn't seem to have a whole lot to do with the singularity idea. It was just a whole bunch of, of cool topics and nice speakers and students doing green earth kind of energy projects. Uh, they're creating these uh, companies. They were forming companies that would help humanity to do certain things like fabricating buildings, uh, using something that looked like a giant plotter and they come up with some ideas, not not one of which had anything to do with the singularity as a pop, pop as a pop fiction idea. So I said, really, you're not 
doing anything with the singularity. You may as well rename this something else um, because it's a grab. You're really doing a really good grab bag program of good thinkers and speakers and good students, and that it isn't singularity at all. Well, how about the Institute for the Future or something like that? I mean, there are a wide variety of ways they could say what they wanted to say without using the the singularity term. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric, you had something. What's that, Bruce? Are you are you um you had something to to uh, to add there? I was saying the uh, the Tavistock Institute is a, is a think tank for the future. Yeah, there's so many of there's many of these, and when when this was proposed about a year and a half or two years ago, I said to the people, "Do you really want to use this term? Because in a sense, between Ray, I mean Ray's Ray was publicly admonished, and about three or four years ago, he he was presenting his singularity curves going to infinity and machine no. intelligence walking at Stanford, and he got really dragged over the coals because the academics invited him to come down and say, okay, we're computer scientists. You're a, you're an engineer. You're a technologist. We don't believe you have, you know, you haven't even started to say how do you get from A to B? How do you make, you know, technology isn't really moving in the direction. You know, cer- certainly processor speeds are getting faster. And I Certainly. provided, provided raves of more data. Then. And so by 2030, we'll singularity, and then IBM said in 2018 you can make a brain-equivalent device from their hardware. About a year later... Well, that that was being said in the 60s, about the 80s. So I, I don't think... If we, if we don't understand what consciousness is, and we don't... Un- no, you're... Eric? This is right. Certainly. So, I mean, to round up this, the, the group that I've had some contact with is, I mean, I've, I've had contact with folks in the Singularity community as well, and I've, I've never actually had the opportunity to say this on Bios Live, but I did invite a wide variety of folks from the Singularity community on to this evening's discussion, uh, and we, we have assembled a, a, a group of folks who aren't part of that community. But the thing that interested me initially uh, was the uh, A Prize from uh, the Lifeboat Foundation, and these are folk in the, I, I think they're a kind of singularity breakaway group, but they certainly say that they're part of the broader singularity community and they are actively collecting money associated with an artificial life prize. So anyway, as, as I was saying, I had some correspondence with Project Lifeboat um, last year, in April last year, with regards to getting them on Bios Live and actually talking about their A prize. And we've had some discussion in the past associated with this whole idea of prizes. I always return to the notion of children's charities, that if children's charities run similar to these artificial life prizes, you'd have uh, you know, a truck turning up at a remote village in Peru with a kind of uh, back filled with cash and having children running for the truck. And the first child to actually reach the truck would get all the money, which seems to be the whole notion associated with these A-life prizes. So I'm always a bit concerned when I hear uh, about charitable artificial life prizes that are awarded to a single participant. But I wanted to have the uh, Lifeboat Foundation folk on to talk about their A-prize. And as my experience has been with regards to uh, a few folk in the singularity community, they asked for the questions up front and I asked for broad questions associated with artificial life and they decided not to come on. They say on their site that they've generated... Uh, 
$28,000, but if you actually look at the fine print, they have about $3,000 worth, and the remaining um, is, is promised to them but hasn't yet been paid. In terms of these groups actually kind of collecting money for artificial life prizes or talking about their representation for the artificial life community without actually having connections with the International Society for Artificial Life or really anyone that, you know, we can, we can track in the artificial life community. I mean, do you have concerns associated with this, Bruce? Well, I, I think I met, I met one fellow who had, maybe he was the sponsor of the A Prize. Um, there was Brig Kleiss who had also sponsored a prize. I'm not sure who we're talking about here. I'm trying to put it together in my head. The Lightbar Foundation, the fellow I was speaking to uh, was a fellow called Matt McGrill, uh, and he's a system engineer at Juniper Networks. I mean, he's just like the rest of us who has a day job. Uh, but he was the representative that they'd connected with who was going to talk on BioLive, and he uh, you know, asked for the questions and then stopped corresponding relatively hurriedly when I sent him back a list of questions asking not necessarily specifics associated with artificial life, but just the general methodology associated with awarding the prize to a single project and the kind of guidelines that they were going to use with regards to the project selection. Similarly, I referenced the Brigg-Kleiss interview because I think that was a very... I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback, including from Brigg himself, that that was a very fair interview associated with something that I'm relatively ethically challenged about in terms of awarding single prizes to artificial life projects or whether these prizes are really just a better you know, motivation for publicizing the people that are giving the prize as opposed to the broader artificial life community, which has been another one of my concerns. But in terms of Project Lifeboats, they are, well, I mean, they claim to be collecting money. Uh, there was $1,000 that was donated initially from the Lifeboat Foundation, and then probably another $2,500 that they've actually collected. There's, like I said, about twenty. $5,000 has been promised to them. It hasn't been collected in the two or three years that they've been operating. My concern is just that they're, they're claiming to represent artificial life attached to the singularity, and they don't seem to really have any connection with artificial life, but they're using the term and doing a lot of publicity associated with it. Yeah, it, it, again, as you pointed out, artificial life is being pulled in different directions. Craig Venter uses the term to talk about, you know, pulling nuclei out of one cell and putting it into another and putting widgets in there and, and, and creating something, sort of hacking existing biology. Yeah. And then there's, there's wet A life and there's soft A life of the, of the 90s period. And, and so the, the term is being pushed and pulled and shoved and, and, uh, and we, you know, the prize seekers are, have their own idea of what, what it means. And that, as you, you pointed out also, the Wikipedia entry keeps changing too and is it doesn't really represent the field. So in some sense, because there isn't sort of an, an institute of artificial life, you know, perhaps the Santa Fe Institute provided that for several years, but there isn't a body really. I mean I guess there's the I think of the, the International Society for Artificial Life, headed by Mark Badeau, that has had kind of semi democratic elections, that have had a number of former participants in Bayer's lives, some who got on the board, some who didn't in the recent elections. I think the International Society is probably the best gauge for contemporary artificial life uh, in terms of... Yeah. A, a, does that seem fair? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You've reminded me of that. and um, I, I, I think I'm going to be in a really good position to understand the community after being part of the organizing committee for Artificial Life 12. I'm really hoping to to, to gain insight, better insights, so I can actually talk intelligently. 
Certainly. And Eric, I know you have to leave the call relatively quickly, but do you have any, any kind of closing comments associated with this topic? No, I'm just glad I got in a few words, Tom, you know, in, in defense of the singularity and everything. I'm pretty sure we'll probably have some kind of a payoff from uh, A-Life or AI pretty soon that's uh, more more than people could do, I think. And I think, I mean, certainly I don't think Bruce and I are necessarily talking against that. I think we both, well, we all have collective visions associated with how that's going to happen. And I think certainly as an inspirational vehicle, and this is something that you've touched on, this is very important with regards to the singularity, but I think also broader science fiction in general. I mean, what we should be doing is not only reading science fiction, but also contributing back to the science fiction community. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Eric? Yeah, no, definitely. If we can... If we can, you look at Greg Egan, you know, he takes a lot. He's like the Michael Crichton of information technologies. He takes a lot of cutting-edge information technologies and, like, really makes them far out for his, uh, for his stories about the not-so-distant future, and it's pretty compelling stuff. Certainly, certainly. Well, Eric, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and I look forward to your further contribution both via audio and via the chat. I know you have to, I know you have to go. Always a pleasure, Eric. You take care. All right. Thanks, Tom. Talk to you soon. Thank Thank you, Eric.